Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. To Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Elisa Gonzalez, a poet, essayist, and fiction writer. Her first book, Grand Tour, will be out this month. Thank you for having me, Danny. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you to be here, too. I didn't want to do anything that would mar the beautiful brevity of your bio, which I, I can't tell you how strongly I admire. Um, but you're also my summer camp friend, my primordial sister, the other half of my soul wandering about in the world. Yeah, we're basically like that um, Aristophanes play, but we've found each other. Yeah, or that one song from Hedwig that everyone uh, was singing in high school. I didn't go to high school. Oh, that's right. That was so. So Elisa and I met at uh, summer camp. Um, we we were at a writer's residency together, uh, and and pretty quickly bonded over Midwestern evangelical childhoods, uh, and and uh, variations on the sort of like evangelical subculture that we both somewhat grew up in. But yours was a little bit more. Bumpy, fractious, interesting, <laughs> secluded, gothic? I was going to say reclusive or perhaps hermetic. I don't know, but gothic would work too. Yeah, all of those. Yeah, you you were homeschooled mm-hmm. and I was just in school school. So we, we got to compare some really interesting notes. And then you went to real college and I went to fake Christian college. So we sort of switched places for, for the end of our education where I'm like, I didn't really learn so much. Uh, I pretty much just went to chapel and then got in trouble for not going to chapel uh, whereas I, I think you were actually able to like cultivate compelling relationships with other young adults and learn things, which is really cool. <laughs> you should be a brochure for regular college. I really should be like, I I don't even know what I don't know. That's that's how much I failed myself in my own schooling. Um, but here we are, you and me. We're not in college anymore. We're going to give some people advice. Uh, what are your What are your general thoughts about advice giving uh, in your own life? Um, In my own life, I think I'm actually pretty hesitant to do it, or at least I try to be. (laughs) I'm really uh, very invested in the framing of, if I were in this situation, I would do this. Um, But I think that's partly because I'm the oldest of eight children and have been told I'm bossy so many times that I'm probably overcompensating at this point. But I'm... I have loved advice columns, including yours, for a long time because they're such a window into people's weird, thorny problems. And that's fascinating to me, Um, the variety of problems, which often do boil down to similar tropes as with all of (laughs) life and fiction. And I was thinking as I was reading the letters that we're going to talk about today about um, a while ago, like when I was in grad school, I had a part-time job reading poetry submissions for The New Yorker, and so many people would just write like letters to Mm. the poetry submission anonymous portal. And I do think that there's something very beautiful about people's desire to push their emotions into the world or to somehow express something and looking for an object that they don't know to do that. Yeah, I I think so too. And I always try to want to, I I often get guests who, because they are thoughtful people, often feel a little bit nervous about advising a couple of strangers uh, because they usually think, I I want to encourage other people to live their lives and not, you know, put my oar in unless it's been, you know, really necessary. Um, And so I, I do think one of the gifts that we get in this podcast is Everyone who writes in is totally free to ignore any and all of this advice. We have no real power over anyone's lives. So I, I tend to think of the exciting and interesting thing that we get to do is speculate and like create several imaginary sandcastle worlds and then knock them down and build new ones. And then whoever wrote the letter is free to take some of it, any of it, none of it. Um, and, and we have just no ability to enforce it. So it really, there's there's a limit to how much damage we can cause somebody else. I mean, even even if someone listens to the show, does exactly what we say, and it goes really, really badly, 
ultimately still the decision to make those choices is theirs. Um, and so I think that can be a little bit freeing. Again, not that we just want to um, invent stuff or or say wildly out-of-pocket things because it doesn't feel real, but it is nice to be reminded that this is um, an exercise in speculation and possibility rather than, okay, the next five years of your life, those are mine. <laughs> I decide if they're good or not. <laughs> I'm glad to get to be as bossy as I want. Yeah. And, yeah, and so this first one, I, I think, is especially going to be relevant to the two of us because it's partly about, am I allowed to stop talking to my dad? But I also think maybe this letter writer kind of knows the direction they're heading in. And so it might have more to do with, if I make this decision, how do I then sit with all the problems that doesn't answer? And I think maybe that's what interests me here is like, often the decision is fairly clear whether or not I think someone wants to continue a relationship with a relative. But the sort of issue is, well, estrangement solves one problem, which is our bad conversations. But it doesn't really solve any of the other problems that include all of my feelings about the way that this person parented me my whole life. So now what? I completely agree. There is a nexus of issues here and many questions besides the ones that the letter writer has articulated. So I'll read this first letter. The subject is hanging on versus letting go. When is your pain severe enough to go no contact with your family? I'm a 35-year-old woman who married my husband, Pedro, at 27, but we separated after a year. Then we were off and on for a few more years before finally getting divorced. I felt like he became really judgmental and closed-minded, especially after he got heavily into Catholicism. The final straw came when we took in his two nephews, who had been abused by their mother. They were 13 and 15, and I took primary care of them, including taking them to therapy, which Pedro put a stop to after a few months because he thought it was a waste of money. The older nephew was very sweet, and I still miss him. The younger one was hard to deal with and acted out sexually. He would try to grab my butt, took a dick pic on my phone while I was sleeping, once touched my arm and took off his belt while I was drying, and made lewd comments about my chest. After each incident, my husband would talk to him. I wanted to be sensitive to his history and didn't want to yell or lash out. The last incident took place when he was 16, when he secretly filmed me when I got out of the shower. I filed a police report, left, and never saw my nephews again. My ex-husband partly blamed me, saying I should have known this would happen and should have checked under the bed before undressing in my room. My very Catholic father said I was the adult and just needed to, quote, control him better. My father was also very against my divorce and wouldn't help me move my things out of the house. I've since tried talking to my father about how much he hurt me, but he stands by everything he's done and says, quote, marriage is to be taken seriously. I even twice asked him if he thought I should stay, even if my husband had struck me. The first time he responded after humming and hawing for several seconds that no one should hit me, still unable to say my husband's name in the hypothetical, the second time I asked, he said it depended on the circumstances and elaborated that if it occurred because I had hit him first, then it was fine. It hurt that even in the hypothetical, he added details to make it my fault and could still not even imagine my husband in the wrong in the least. To be clear, my ex never struck me. He frightened me once by smashing a chair, but that was all. I no longer wanted much to do with my father after that. My siblings think that now that I am officially divorced and my father doesn't talk to me about my marriage anymore, that I should let it go and go to family gatherings again. Honestly, at this point, I want to cut everyone off except for my mother. She left my father 20 years ago. I used to be close to my siblings, but this really hurts. It feels like they want to sweep everything under the rug, like my feelings don't matter to them, and they just want to make a show of being a happy family. I feel very isolated, having been sexually harassed and assaulted by a minor when it's usually the other way around. Was I justified in leaving? Am I making too big a deal of this with my father? Am I justified in staying away and cutting contact, or should I try to just move on with him? So this one is, there's a lot of there there. It's long. Um, it was originally longer. I tried to cut it down where I could, but I, I wanted to include some more of these details because I think they provide some useful context. And so I, I think the letter writer is is mostly aware. It was probably a really good idea to get out of this marriage. Uh, it did not sound healthy. It did not sound good. It did not sound like it was on the verge of getting better. I, I don't know if you have any other thoughts other than just like, yep, I'm happy to sign off on that call. That seemed like the right one. 
Oh, it definitely seems like the right one. I mean, it seems like a very troubled family situation that wasn't also entirely on her, but she was carrying a really heavy burden. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It was interesting to me that she is still asking, was I justified in leaving? Because it seems like she is harboring a lot of guilt for reasons perhaps to do with a religious upbringing, a lot of people heaping guilt on her in the years, some sense of responsibility for those boys. Um, but I, it definitely seems like a situation that uh, would sign off and saying you are you were right. Congratulations on your divorce. Yeah. And, and so I, I feel like maybe some of the anxiety about reassurance there is also mirrored in that conversation the letter writer describes with her father, which is so painful to read. Not Not because, obviously, for the obvious reasons, but there's just these really kind of just heartbreaking details of like, and then I asked this question, and then we broke it down to, into its constituents' parts. And even in this scenario, even in this hypothetical, he wouldn't do the bare minimum. I tried again, he still wouldn't. So what I see in that letter writer is a real desperation to keep lowering this bar until your father could step over it. And when you brought it down as low as you possibly could, he still wouldn't step over. And so what I'm just seeing there is you wanted so badly to find something salvageable. You wanted so badly to make it easy for him. Um, and and ultimately, there was no, you, you couldn't descend deep enough for him to come step over and join you where you were. And so I just think part of what's going to be coming up for you is what are sources of support and reassurance you can get that are real and safe um, and where someone will affirm like, yes, it is reasonable to want to be safe in your own home. No, it is not incumbent upon you to check your own bedroom for hidden cameras in case someone's filming you. And I just really share your sense that that's really frightening and destabilizing. Um, Obviously, I hope that your nephew is like getting help and treatment. I understand that he is 16 and a minor and I want him to both not sexually harass and assault other people. And I also like, I, I want this not to be the trajectory of his life. But again, that's not uh, none of that is on you. Your husband behaved wildly, inappropriately in response to that. Um, I'm really glad you're out of that house. And whatever help and safety are going to look like for your nephew, uh, you know, that'll have to come from somewhere else. And that's just nothing that you have to worry about now. But yeah, I just I, I think you've experienced so much. Um, you're making too big a deal out of something. Your needs don't matter. You need to just try harder that the challenge for you is going to be finding support you can actually trust. Because I imagine if you like share something with a friend or a therapist and they say you don't deserve to be treated that way, part of you is going to feel like that doesn't feel right. Or like, sure, sure, sure. Okay, you say that, but I don't really feel comfortable with this. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that I feel like the letter writer, you do know what you need to do with your family and you are headed that way. Um, And then I think the big task is finding other sources of support that will help you understand your past differently and also how you like and will help to affirm, I suppose, that sense that you are valuable, that you are you know, are deserving of respect, (laughs) that the ways that people have treated you in the past are not the ways that you should be treated forever going forward. And that is really hard to internalize. So it probably will take quite a lot of work. But certainly, it seems like the first step is saying, no, I was right. And also, the people who are not willing to do that for me, like, should not be in my life anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's rare. It's not unheard of, but it's rare that someone will write to me and say, I'm thinking about becoming estranged from one or more relatives and I'll say anything other than go for it. Um, I I do try to, if somebody wants to salvage or maintain a relationship, to honor that desire of theirs. And it's it's really not that I just delight in the rupture of relationships. I just think there's so much pressure in the direction of tolerate anything, put up with anything, overlook anything because someone's related to you, that if a stranger or an acquaintance or a colleague did it, you would be like running for the hills, um, that it's useful to give permission in another direction. So again, like it seems like the letter writer is now clear. She doesn't want to have anything to do with her father after that conversation. I, I affirm that. I think that's, I think that's reasonable. I get it. I, I'm really glad that you still want to talk to your mom and that your mom left your dad. That's great. You know, 
I, I, I'm glad you would, you could maybe get one person out of this, but that sort of question of just, you know, my siblings are now asking, basically they're just asking you to do the same thing that your father and your husband were doing before, which is pretend everything is okay. Go back to normal. Don't make a fuss. And you've already realized that doesn't work. And so I think it's still painful, but you already know, like you already have the sort of experience of I've stopped doing that. And so I think this is going to be in some ways sad because it's like the last hurdle to clear, but in other ways, it's a little easier than leaving your husband and it's a little easier than stopping talking to your father. So I, I think, you know, if at most I would encourage you to say, I really love you guys. I really strongly object to the idea that I should pretend we didn't have this conversation. I don't think that's right. I'm not going to do that. If if that is something that you can't handle, I'm really sorry, but I'm not available for, uh, it's not up for a vote. I'm not up for discussing that. If you want to get together one-on-one, we can maybe talk about that. Like if you want to go see a movie, but I'm not doing family events with dad and I will not be responding to, can you change your mind? Can you change your mind? Can you change your mind? Um, and that will sort of be your, uh, you'll, you'll know pretty quick, you know, because either they'll actually get on board and re- recognize that or they'll be like, yeah, 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 let's get together so I can talk to you about how unhappy you've made dad. <laughs> Who's getting older, by the way. Have you noticed? He's looking more like a majestic oak in the fall. <laughs> Some of the leaves are falling down. And would you really want to take responsibility for that? And that's just garbage and bullshit. It is garbage and bullshit. Um, and I will say, letter writer, I, you don't know anything about me. Um, but I cut off contact with my father, who was very religious when I was 19. And I don't regret it at all. Um, in fact, I feel I felt extremely guilty because I did really love him, as you often do your parents, even after years of them not treating you well. But I also felt like I was going to go insane if I didn't. And I fortunately did have support from other members of my family. And I'm really sorry that your siblings have not been doing that for you. Um I'm glad you have your mom, but I I do think that there is great freedom that can come out of that. It might it takes some time to develop, but it there is estrangement is not necessarily a condition of like of absence or like only separation. Like those absences get filled by other relationships and other people, and also your own sense of self determination. I think so. That I would look toward the future as something that could definitely be mm-hmm. brighter and better. Um, yeah. And, and just again, letter writer, I think there's probably going to be times when you'll want to feel like I, I just need to like remind myself again, like here's the list of things that happened that led me to leave my husband. Here's the list of things I tried with my father, just to kind of remind yourself, you didn't make that up. That wasn't something you imagined. I think sometimes it can be really useful to just have like a quick little, not like a list of all your grievances, but just it, if because this has been such a pattern, if sometimes you doubt yourself or you feel like, wow, maybe I was really too hard, you know, you can even just look at this letter and look at, boy, what are all the things I tried with my father? How long has this been a problem? How badly has he messed this up for us to get to this point? Um, because this is not just like the whim uh, of a bad night's sleep. And then you decided, you know what, everything in my life was my fucking father's fault. You're like, this is actually an incredibly painful pattern. I've tried immeasurably hard to try to get him to meet me first in the middle, then one quarter of the way, then like Zeno's paradox. (laughs) Um, And, you know, again, it's just the same thing with your siblings. And if it feels like too much to just say, fuck off, you can say, I love you. And I'm happy to talk later about what's going on with me, but only, or like why I made this decision. And I don't ask you to share it. um, But my baseline is I would need you to respect it. I need you to not ask me to change it. And I need you to not, you know, try to get us to the same events. If you can do that, it would be wonderful to be able to stay close. If you can't, that's your choice. And I think that can feel better than just like, goodbye forever, fuck off. Like, when I cut off the rest of my family, I, with the sort of core members, I sort of just made it clear, here's here's what I think you have done wrong. Not like everything you've ever done I didn't like, but just like, here are the really basic ways I think you have gotten just being a person deeply wrong. And I really hope you change. Um, if you ever do, I wish you really well with that. That doesn't mean we're going to become close again, but like, that would be my hope for you. 
And some of my extended family who were not involved in the immediate conspiracy, I just said, you know, here's the choice I've made. Here's why. I understand if this puts you in a difficult position. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to talk, I'm not asking you to do anything. I just want you to know. That um, didn't, you know, nobody took me up on that. But I'm glad I did that. Like, I, I'm glad I tried it. Um, it felt better than if I had just said, I'm really mad and I want to paint you all with the same brush. It's sad that they didn't make the choice I was hoping for, but um, I am glad that I gave it a shot. And I don't know, I, I guess I just really want to stress, like, even in my position where, to me, even if they had like a total, like, uh, journey to Damascus moment and like deeply, to use their word, repented and like sincerely went around trying to make amends, I, I think I would be glad for them. But in a, in a way that would just involve like distant peacefulness, transmission of a desire for well-being, it would not be great. Let's, let's, let's spend next Christmas together. And, and there are ways to let go of some levels of like anger or hostility that don't translate into, and we are actively in a relationship. And I think sometimes that gets easy to ignore in conversations about estrangement. And of course, you know, you know, you fucking hate someone you're estranged from, and that's fine too. I, I was going to say, it's also fine to be mad. I mean, it's good for, I think, you as a person. I found it to be good for me as a person to try to release some of the anger um, just so I don't, I'm like, I don't want to think about you that much. Uh, free some brain space. Um, and yeah, I mean, Danny, what you said, I think it is also for relationships which are not so like quite so stark it's good to try to honor the fact that those have existed and you know you make some kind of overture of um but yeah but you have to accept that also people are going to make their choices which very often may not involve supporting you somehow yeah um people love the status quo um i will also say in addition to a list it can be really great to just randomly tell people like at parties like bad stuff that someone has done to you and then watch them react this is irresponsible advice but uh, if you want a, a sense check on how crazy your family is or how bad your father was or whatever um it can be uh it can be a good one probably we should move on to our next letter I guess, which I'm excited to make you read because it's about like weird trans guilt. And I think that's funny. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Anytime. Um, the subject of this letter is accidental egg smasher. Last year, I became active in a small Discord server of long distance friends. The only person most of us didn't know in real life was Sam, a childhood friend of another member of the group who lives abroad. Sam was out as bisexual to close friends and had been for years, but lived in a rural part of a conservative country where they weren't out at work and married to a straight partner who wasn't comfortable with their bisexuality. Most of the rest of us are queer and trans, and this was the first meaningful community Sam had felt in years. As we all got to know Sam better, more questions about gender came up, and Sam eventually expressed curiosity and desire around transition. We all did our best to be supportive, although when Sam told their spouse, the conversation went really badly. I naively thought that with more time and consideration, they might work through it together, but that hasn't been the case. Sam recently mentioned they'll be less active in the Discord channel because their spouse fears that it's making them trans. Sam will be visiting us in a few months while in the U.S. to see family, but after this development, their spouse has opted not to join them. I don't think Sam would meet with physical violence if they transitioned, but it would be very difficult socially, and they would probably lose their job and have trouble finding another one in their country. I feel totally unequipped to advise on the specific cultural context of their situation. A huge part of me and our other friends feels guilty for having started these conversations in the first place. Sam's initial crack of dysphoria was the result of an innocuous joke I made about their gender early on. I apologized profusely, and we worked through it right away. How do I best support Sam moving forward? We have asked them directly, and they said they're not sure. I don't feel comfortable telling them to just blow up their life and marriage. We've all let them know they are welcome to use the Discord as much or as little as they need, and we are there to listen whenever. They made an appointment with an LGBT-friendly therapist, are having slightly more productive conversations with their spouse, and are still excited about visiting us, but things still feel pretty hairy. 
I feel like I carelessly took a hammer to something fragile without realizing it, and now Sam might have to make a very difficult choice. I know from my own experience that for most of us, that self-actualization always comes sooner or later, and other people can't really control when or how we get there. But it's difficult not to feel like Sam might have been able to live contentedly believing they were cis, was it not for us? So, without in any way seeming disrespectful to this letter, I'd like to first begin by reading from homeschoolbookreviewblog.wordpress.com about my friend Flicka, <laughs> which I did look up while you were reading this. If, if, if you don't mind. But please. And frankly, even if you do, because I'm, I'm on a real tear here. Uh, previously, I had two different views of this book by friends. One said, it contained a significant amount of profanity, while another wrote, it's been a favorite with my children. Having read it, I can attest to the fact that my friend Flicka does contain a lot of profanity and cursing. I do not know what the difference is between profanity and cursing in this context. Even the mother, who is normally placid, but uses the D word on one occasion. However, I've What's also seen a version among those cute little books for girls that have lockets wrapped around them, and I suspect that that one has been edited with much of the offending material removed. It would be interesting to obtain a copy of the cute little book for girls and see if this is the case. Others have confirmed that there is a Reader's Digest condensed version that eliminates the profanity. Okay, what is the D word? And also... I have no memory of this, and I know I read that book. So what? I think the D word is damn. Oh, I thought maybe dick, but. Oh, no, I no. don't. I, I think like. <laughs> damn is makes more sense. And like, you know, it's published in the 40s. It's like a, a bunch of like ranchers who are going to be slightly salt of the earth. That feels completely like appropriate. And it's like funny that people of later generations would feel more like scandalized by people in the past who they would probably want to like cite as you know uh examples of good clean living yeah i guess that there are people to whom the occasional dam is just totally unacceptable even in a book about like ranchers where you know it's, it's ranching you know horses are going to be born and die and there's going to be elements of life there what if it's darn what if it's even oh my goodness <laughs> that's like a real ned flanders situation <laughs> Well, I, I'm going to look up my friend Flicka after yeah. this. Preacher, I'm, I'm meek, but I could be meeker. <laughs> um, do you remember those cute little books for girls that would sometimes come with a locket wrapped around them? Mm-hmm. I fucking love them. I got one once and it was as exciting as winning Pretty Pretty Princess, which was very exciting. But I don't think just because there's a locket on it means, oh, they've like, there's such an amazing series of ideas about like, gender and language and like of course if you're selling a book about horses with a locket wrapped around it you also would object to the word damn uttered once by an old ranch woman (laughs) right like no one would give a girl a locket and allow her to read the word damn no one would do both of those things it's one or the other completely antithetical yeah women girls must be kept from all such things i mean yeah, I, I. so anyways, all that is just to say, I guess if you have strong feelings about mild profanity uh, and you still want your kids to read My Friend Flicka, Reader's Digest is going to be your friend. Locket edition, <laughs> not sure. That's it. So with that out of the way. <laughs> we can turn to the accidental egg smasher. I, I mean, I guess my question for this one is, do you think that the letter writer has taken on do you think this is a reasonable reaction? Like, there's clearly a lot of guilt about, like, if only I hadn't made that joke. Do you think that's reasonable? Do you think when it comes to being, like, gay or trans, uh, that inviting someone to talk about it or suggesting something, even if it's meant affectionately or as a joke, is the same thing as creating it or forcing it? And if you hadn't done that, they would have just remained, like, a tabula rasa? Because that, to me, feels like the real question here is like, I don't think you have as much influence as you think you do. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I was thinking about. I was like, well, I am a champion of assuming guilt that I don't need, but I really feel that there is more guilt than is necessary here. I mean, there's that sort of, it's an to me, it's an odd way to think about causality for anything, but especially about gender or sexuality um 
where like one precipitating incident that's almost an or you know was an accident like then sets off all these things which end up with this person you know potentially ha- experiencing a lot of life changes that are very difficult um for them um but it also sounds like the person isn't sam is not that confused about the, or is taking steps to try to solve some of these problems and to figure out whether or not they are going to transition. And I do wonder, I guess I am also curious about why the letter writer feels so much responsibility for this choice. I think maybe, I wish I knew more about the like concepts behind anxiety of influence, because I feel like if I did, I could really get into something here. But I don't know much about it besides the expression. <laughs> so all I can do is signal to it and be like, I don't know, go listen to Ordinary Unhappiness. I bet they would know. <laughs> I don't. I actually don't think that's um, that relevant. So it's fine that you don't. Oh, LOL. It's Harold Bloom. Why yeah. did I think this was from psychoanalysis? I was going to say I, you know. Because I really don't know it. All I knew was the name of the expression. And I didn't even know it came from Harold Bloom. Well, now I'm having a flashback to when Harold Bloom took my face in his hands and said, oh, my sweet. <laughs> Yo, that's what we're talking about now. Um. <laughs> so just so you know, he continued to sexually harass undergraduates for a long time oh. into his 80s. Also, I just um, Googled him and there's a picture of him looking way more like Zero Mostel than I remembered. So that was also really like jarring. Uh, to be clear, as far as I know, Zero Mostel never sexually harassed people. Uh, I hope he didn't, but if he did, he shouldn't have. Um, oh, he doesn't look that much like Zero Mostel. All right. <laughs> there's uh, there's something in the eyes. There's something in the eyes. <laughs> I'll um, have to look up later. <laughs> what? I mean, obviously, you tell me how comfortable you are talking about this. What was the context for for this face-taking? I had picked up his hat, which he had dropped in the hallway outside the classroom um, because he was very old. And uh, to thank me, that is what he decided was appropriate that is a wild reaction to someone handing you your hat <laughs> it was like one of those brown floppy hats you know oh of, of course yeah I, I could expect nothing else all right well now i feel better about never having finished full staff uh i think it's fine yeah i think so too because i actually I, I got it on audiobooks and so i only got the sample because i didn't have enough credits to buy a whole audiobook <laughs> so it was just the first five minutes and then i was like this is boring i don't like your ideas about fall staff this is hard I didn't go to real college. I don't want to learn anymore. Oh, my God. Danny, you and I are both autodidacts, but on different ends of our uh, educational spectrum. I, I don't think it counts as being an autodidact if you keep giving up. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, sure, on. I'm something. I'm something. Um, yeah, so basically putting aside Harold Bloom entirely and letting go of the fantasy that I'm ever going to know what the anxiety of influence is supposed to mean. I think, letter writer, you clearly have a lot of compassion for Sam, which is great. But I think also you are trying to make yourself into like a load-bearing foundational pillar in Sam's life when you kind of can't be. Like you've been part of a chat group that has, you know, provided meaningful community and like answered some questions that Sam's had, which is great. But the fundamental problem is that Sam kind of wants to start transitioning, knows that their spouse doesn't support this, also lives in a place where that's going to be really difficult and isn't sure what to do next. If Sam were writing to me, I would have some advice about like how to rank their various priorities. It would probably involve leaving their spouse. Um, But Sam didn't write to me. You did. And so I think really it's important here to focus on the decision of whether or not to transition is going to be Sam's. So you don't have to put any of that on yourself. It's not like a hall of mirrors or like the amber room or something like infinitely fragile and beautiful where like if you sneeze too loudly like the treasured time of not yet hatching or I I just, yeah, it's not like a hall of mirrors. It's not like a dinosaur egg. It's not like you let something out of the box that can never be put back in. Sam's clearly been gunning for this. Like Sam's been seeking out a lot of trans and queer people to talk to and asking questions. And maybe the joke you made was a little rude, but it sounds to me more like it was just like kind of a fun little like, hey, possibility. And then Sam was like, ah, I feel sensitive. And you talked about that well. So I I don't even think you're going around. I mean, again, if you're like going around saying stuff to people like, I think you're trans, like 
you know, maybe modify your tone or your approach, but it doesn't sound like you really did anything that bothered Sam. So I really think it's just, you feel really bad. They're in a difficult position. You wish that they weren't. And I get that a lot, but that doesn't make this your fault. Just because their spouse in derangedly thinks that you all caused this. Everybody who hates trans people wants to think somebody else caused it because then they can just scapegoat and isolate the like contaminating force. And then they get their cis like partner or relative back. But that's a fantasy. Yes. Um, this is also slightly less compassionate of me to add, but that, but again, as a person who feels a lot of guilt, I think that there is a kind of, and this is not to say letter writer that you do not have a lot of compassion and care for Sam. I, it seems like you really do, but there is a part of feeling guilty about things that are really not in any measure your fault or anything that you actually can take responsibility for, which I do think is a kind of fantasy of specialness that is also sometimes goes along with having a lot of empathy and... Um, I'm pointing to myself and waggling my eyebrows because <laughs> I do this. Yeah, but I, it's just, it's really important to, I, I don't want to use the word arrogance because that sounds like too accusatory, but it is something that I think of it with myself. I'm like, do you really think that you could like change this situation? Like really, you think that everything is due to this or that you're responsible for everything in this person's life. Um, and I also think it's really important to, no matter what the struggle is, but especially with something that's as kind of essential as you're, you know, figuring out if you're going to transition um, and, you know, perhaps probably it seems changing your entire life, realizing that you need to respect that the other person is a person and they have all their own responsibilities and sets of guilts and they're you know they are separate from you they <laughs> you are not in charge of them so yeah. that's can be a relief yeah so like if you just again kind of like with our first letter writer like just take a look at what's happened like let go of some of the feelings about the feelings and like the meta commentary that you've been generating here and let's just look at what happens you've been part of a discord where you chat with a bunch of friends this have included a lot of conversations that have been generally supportive and uh, wide-ranging about the possibilities around gender and transition. All of that is good, fine, normal, appropriate. People do that all the time. None of that's something you should feel weird or guilty about. Uh, the one thing you mentioned that you feel a little iffy about is that these conversations started because you had made some kind of a joke about their gender. And again, you don't say what it was. I don't know what kind of tone the chat normally has. So this could be anywhere from like, haha, you have a really cool androgynous vibe that I like to something that was overly familiar or something. Again, I don't know, so I don't want to come down too hard on you. But what happened? Sam said something, presumably. You apologized profusely, and you worked through it. So you've already done the thing of dealing with that. You didn't leave that stone unturned. Sam didn't come to you six months later and said that was actually really fucked up. You didn't laugh it, laugh it off and say, like, no, it was fine. Like, you handled it appropriately. So that's done. You can't I mean, I guess if you wanted to bring that back up and just say, hey, I wanted to reaffirm that I'm sorry I made that joke a year ago, you you can, but not really more than once, you know? You can't keep doing it. And I, I don't think that that's going to be what makes you feel better. So, um, you know, in terms of I don't feel comfortable telling them to just blow up their life and marriage, totally reasonable, totally appropriate. I, I, I think eventually they might have to, but I agree that that should be something that comes from them. And so just in terms of like encouraging them, yeah, like make the visit, think about what works for you. If you're sharing something that your partner said that I think is really wrong or misguided, I will say gently, like, I really disagree with that. I don't think that they're right. I'm really sorry they said that to you. But that's clear enough. You know what I mean? Like, I think we've all had a friend who was with someone that we all kind of knew they should not be with. And it is definitely possible to reflect like, wow, they really shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry. How are you doing? without going into, you should leave, you should leave, you should leave, which is like, who wants to hear that? I don't know. Has anyone ever told you, you should leave, you should leave, and it felt great and it worked out? Maybe <laughs> maybe it does work. No, but, uh, you know, usually if you should leave, you know, so you're just working your way toward the knowing becoming actuality. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you should never discuss it with your friends, but just generally, I agree, like, if someone's not inviting you to 
have that kind of vote in their life unless they're describing behavior that is like incredibly abusive so that you're worried about their safety. It is usually better not to be the person to bring that up. And I guess maybe that's why the letter writer is feeling a little uncertain is because like, well, some of the conversations we've had around gender are like pretty personal. And so in one sense, this is kind of an intimate friendship. But in other ways, and I think this is a good instinct on the letter writer's part, in other ways, I want to acknowledge and respect the fact that this is not someone I've met in person. This is not someone who knows maybe the same amount about me. And so this is not in some ways as intimate a relationship as our conversations about gender might lead me to otherwise think. So there's maybe that balance of like etiquette of like, I should still be on not like company manners with you, but like... I'm not like, we're not just like nonstop Parisiastes truth telling to each other. Yeah, I, I think that that makes sense. It sounds like it's pretty specific conversations. And who knows, after Sam's visit, maybe a lot of things will, will change. Um, and it also seems like the letter writer is feeling uncertain about not knowing the culture of that, the, the cultural context that Sam is living in, which I also think is, you know, a good thing to be respectful of your own ignorance about. But again, that's the kind of thing where, yeah, I don't opine about the social conditions that you have not personally experienced or researched or, you know, whatever, but, and let Sam be the one to guide those conversations. But yeah. again, Sam's the one who's going to have to navigate that. Yeah. And so I realized we kind of leaned heavily on the let yourself off the hook slash don't take yourself so seriously end of things. And I I do think that's a good approach. Like just a lot of this is ultimately going to be like, this is Sam's problem. And you can sometimes talk to them about it, but don't take on more than you need to. Don't make this your problem to fix. Just be affectionate and supportive uh, to a reasonable degree. And then also trust like they've lived their own life up until now. They don't need me to run it for them, which again, I always want to do. If I feel compassion or empathy for someone, like an egomaniacal switch gets flipped in my brain and I'm like, obviously now I'm responsible for your happiness. And it's just like, literally no one's ever asked me to do that for them. I don't know where I got this idea, (laughs) but I constantly have to get rid of it. You're a wonderfully kind person, but I you should not run everyone's no, life at all. Way too much work at all. And also, I am not always kind, and sometimes my kindness fuels an insane degree of entitlement that sours quickly when I don't get what I want. So uh, I got to be careful there. But with all that said, when you say I feel like I carelessly took a hammer to something fragile without realizing it, I do think one thing that you can take that with you into the future is. In the future, if you find yourself talking to someone who you kind of feel like maybe has some feelings about their gender they're hinting at, and, you know, remember this moment and be like, I'm not going to make a joke. In the past, I've made a joke. Sometimes it worked out. Sometimes it didn't. Instead, maybe think about either just like letting them bring it up on their own or saying something like, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times some some jokes about gender that just sort of make me curious. Have you been thinking about this lately? Um and again, that doesn't mean you said something evil, wrong, unforgivable. Just it might be a sign that you're ready to change that tactic, that you don't actually want to lead with a joke when somebody is giving off like gender radioactivity. Gender radioactivity. I, I like that. And again, I also like, I think jokes can be great. And if you read the room right, it can be beautiful, but you got to read the room and you're not always going to be right. And um, especially not when you're just getting to know someone also when you can't see them in real life. But yeah, also basically, I guess what I just mean is like, if you like affectionately, but also like lightheartedly say to someone like, you know, you can always try hormones. Everyone can. That's fine. You're not hurting anybody. You're not outing them. You're not forcing them to do anything. That's not the same thing as saying, like, I I think X, Y, or Z is happening with your gender. I also think there can be an extreme sensitivity to, like, invoking the possibility of transness is, like, potentially, like, rude or inappropriate in a way that really pathologizes transness. And mm-hmm. this is part of why I think they should sell it next to the bubble gum at all corner stores. Um, and with that, I will move on to our very last little uh, letter. Uh, which was great. I don't often get updates like this one. And so I really am happy to read this one aloud. Um, this is actually from back in the like late winter, early spring. So although it refers to an early uh, or a recent episode, uh, it's no longer recent because I didn't see it until this week. So the subject is accidentally happily alone. In your recent episode, Time to Move On, you said that usually when you're trying to end a friendship, the feeling is mutual. I love this because I now have no memory of saying this. <laughs> I can think of 12 different exceptions to this. And I'm like, where did I get the confidence to say that? Is that true at all? I don't know. Who knows? Uh, luckily, that is only usually. 
I recently had a friend or two I've been close with for 15 years go no contact with me after years of frustration and some stressful major life milestones, death in the family, romantic loss, pregnancy loss, etc. And they're probably certain they hurt me deeply, but I've never felt more relieved of these burdensome relationships. You can be happily estranged from your chosen family too. I'm both glad and sorry, but also... How does that contradict my thing? Because it sounds like this. This is what I was wondering when I read this. I was like, isn't that exactly. Isn't that what I said? Unless they're saying that they didn't. Maybe there's a typo and they meant to say the feeling isn't. No, because I bet I said it was mutual. That sounds like some bullshit, I would say. (laughs) It does sound like something you would say. You're always right. If you want to stop being friends, they probably fucking hate you too. Well, I actually, I kind, I'm like, if there are tensions in your friendship, you're probably not the only person who has noticed that, even right. if you both haven't talked about but it. But it's a, it's a big leap from there too, and they both also want to stop being friends. Yes, um, um, I guess this person is just, this person is like glad about not having to have had those conversations, and is just very happy to be free of these. I'm so there are several things that I'm confused about in this. The Implied contradiction with what you said, which may or may not be a typo. Also, the whose stressful major life milestones were these? And I like that there's no attribution. It's so <laughs> and like what's going on? I I'm I'm just uh yeah. There's a lot hidden in these lines that I really wish I knew more about. Like, but I'm I agree. You can be happily estranged from friends. It's or former friends. Yeah. You also, I I don't think the letter writer was doing this, but like, you also don't have to call your friends your chosen family. Like, I don't know if that's an expression that you find meaningful, great, but. Well, did you see how I avoided it? Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I can't say this out loud. I feel like I would just rather say family, frankly, like without yeah. the uh, qualifier, just because it feels like, yeah, that's still family. That's a, that's a kinship tie. A sociologist would know what was going on here if they were poking at our ties after our deaths with their little brushes. You know how archaeology see, can see emotions? Yeah. You know, you have educated yourself a lot. Yeah, I'm something. It's like, you remember how like in Twin Peaks, the FBI is always run in like empathy. It's like an FBI that runs on empathy. I feel like they would have like an archaeology department that's like dusting off old friendships um, and treating them as somehow visible. Um, I guess that's my last thought of the day. <laughs> that and I really want to reread My Friend Flicka. I also do. I feel like I was not conscious enough of the profanity and cursing at the time. What was your uh, horse girl situation growing up? Were I was not a horse girl. I do. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm frankly sorry I even asked. I feel that I've insulted you. Danny, how could you? I, I didn't. But there, there, you know, you can still be beautiful in a horse girl. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. It's it wasn't only the the preserve of the weirdos. You could also you could also be conventionally hot. Uh thank you for telling everyone who listens to this podcast that I'm hot. Um they can hear it. It's audible. People can tell. People know. Oh, please keep these coming. The cat's out of the fucking bag, folks. I I actually find horses terrifying. So that is contributing to it. I don't think it has anything to do with uh, hotness or weirdness. Well, someday we'll go horse riding on the beach and you will feel the world move in time with the hooves of a beautiful horse and you will fear them no longer. Can we ride bareback? That hurts. (laughs) I mean, we can. It's just really hard. I just want my hair to like flow in the wind. It'll it'll totally flow. It'll totally flow. But you'll you'll enjoy the saddle and the stirrup and the bridle. Those were choice inventions uh, in, in, in horsemanship history. And um, it's a, the thing about riding bareback is often you put down a blanket to sort of blunt the horse's spine jabbing you, which is great. <laughs> but you have to just clutch that much more tightly with your thighs. Okay. So just the whole time, it's like you're doing the Suzanne Summers thigh master thing, even when you're just walking. And it just, unless you are in just like absolute top of your life shape, which again is really different from just being in regular good shape. Like unless you are doing thigh master stuff for an hour every morning, it's a lot. Okay, you've convinced me. We can use a saddle when we Thank go you. horse riding. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, obviously, as always, uh, if anyone listening to the show is like an expert bareback uh, saddle rider, 
not saddle rider, uh, horse rider, please write in and, and tell me, you know, if I'm off base or how hard you think it is and uh, whether it informs your ability to advise people. And if you have any horse-related problems, please write into Big Mood, Little Mood. Thank you all so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. You've been doing this for a decade. I would say even just as a teacher, changing up your methods and your modes of engaging with students and trying to stay in touch with changing trends is also just going to be useful to you in your goal of teaching kids effectively. And I think keeping your room decorated along the same lines of the same series, even if you're updating the stuff, but always keeping the general theme the same, is eventually going to get in your way, right? So none of that's to say, like, tear it all down tomorrow. But I would say just start adding stuff from other popular book series. Obviously, it's still hugely popular, but so are other books. There are other books that young kids read. And again, like this is good for two reasons. One is it reduces your sort of dependence on like Rowling as the way of connecting with kids. And and two, you know, J.K. Rowling can't speak to every child's experience and can't captivate everyone's imagination. So there are going to be kids who not necessarily are going to like be deeply hurt by like J.K. Rowling's personal Twitter account. They might have like no idea what she does in her spare time, but who just, you know, Harry Potter doesn't do it for them. And if you're spending most of the sort of time and, and decorating budget for your classroom on Hogwarts shit, you know, you're just missing an opportunity to like put more variety in there. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.